This podcast is brought to you by the Ohio Writing Project. OWP supports teachers from all over Ohio and celebrates the professionalism, expertise, and talent of our state's educators. Ohio Writing Project, teachers teaching teachers. Welcome to Write Answers, a production by the Ohio Writing Project. I guess we'll call this season two. Why not start a new season here? And uh, I'm joined by co-director of the Ohio Writing Project, Beth Reimer. Beth, how are you doing? Hey, Noah. I'm doing great. I love season two. Yeah, me too. We're going to get into it here shortly. <laughs> but first, what, what's uh, coming up at OWP? Well, starting our season right now, we have two really amazing things going on. One we have decided to continue on with our annual OWP fall teacher conference. So it's a day of learning with K-12 teachers. We're gonna have an amazing keynote because the title is 2020 Vision, Teaching and Writing. Right, something about this year is really allowing us to have a clear vision of our beliefs, our needs, our student desires, maybe the what if in education and what it could be. So our keynote is gonna be various voices from OWP, you're one of them, and giving a little like vision of 2020, what it might be going forward in terms of teaching and writing. And then K-12 sessions. So if you're interested, check out the website and you'll find the link to RSVP and you'll get all the information from there. And then of course, we are still also working in schools, which has been amazing. And by in schools, I mean, sometimes we're actually in schools with teachers and then sometimes we're remote and distanced and really, really thinking about what it means to teach and learn in this distance and remote way. And it has been incredible. So again, if anybody is interested in that work, find us on the website and you can email us and we can work together. So good stuff happening. It's really good stuff happening because one thing I've noticed just with in in talking to a lot of teachers is people feel like they're rudderless ships and from their departments or from their schools or from their country a lot of teachers just feel like they need vision. They need leadership. They need some help on how to make some of these decisions and this is exactly what OWP is leaning into uh, this fall and probably beyond. Right. And the question about sustainability. This is hard work right now. And so that's one of the questions we're having a lot about how do we collaborate and make it this year all the way through. Perfect. So we're going to get to the interview in just a second. First, a poem. This is a poem that's going to be hard for us to bounce back from. So we're just going to let it sit with you for a minute after we read it. Playground Elegy by Clint Smith. The first time I slid down a slide, my mother told me to hold my hands in toward the sky. Something about gravity, weight distribution, and feeling the air ripple through your fingers. I remember reaching the bottom, smile consuming half of my face, hands still in the air, because I didn't want it to stop. Ever since, this defiance of gravity has always been synonymous with feeling alive. When I read of the new child, his body strewn across the street, a casket of bones and concrete, I wonder how many times he slid down the slide. How many times he defied gravity to answer a question in class. Did he raise his hands for all of them? Does my mother regret this? 
that she raised a black boy growing up to think that raised hands made me feel more alive, that raised hands meant I was alive, that raised hands meant I would live. So we just wanted to sit with that for a minute, but in this season, we're gonna be grounding a lot of our thinking and core beliefs. And I imagine for many teachers, and I hope for every teacher, anti-racism is one of those core beliefs. But we also have some other core beliefs that we're gonna be thinking about. Beth, can you talk about how this season we're gonna be focusing on two big ideas? Absolutely. So Noah, when we were talking and I've been thinking about the work that I've done with teachers across the summer and all the learning that I've done alongside teachers, two things really came to the surface about this idea of remote and distance teaching. And one of them, there was this idea that we cannot let go of our core beliefs. In fact, our core beliefs are like our North Star, right? We might even need to name them even more um, formally, even more intentionally for ourselves, that here's what we believe. And if we can name those core beliefs, we can start to design our remote and distance teaching to constantly look back at those core beliefs. I mean, here's what, here's what I'm talking about. So if I really believe about and in student choice and voice, then it doesn't matter what platform I'm in. It doesn't matter if I'm in a classroom face-to-face -face five days a week or if I'm remote or hybrid. I'm still gonna wanna design work and learning and time together where students have choices, where I hear their voice, where authentic audiences see that, and I can do that in any way. So that core belief of student choice and voice becomes my true north. It lets me plan beyond just assignments, right? It helps me plan teaching. And so one of the things that we noticed is this idea of if we can name and hold on to our core beliefs and use them as part of our planning to make decisions, that helps us as teachers and maybe clarifies some of the work that we're going to do this year as teachers. And then the other thing that seems to be floating up to the top is super interesting. And I think you named it the other day when working with teachers. And you mentioned this idea about routines. And I was like, yes. That's it. And I was taken back to April. My youngest daughter was having a really like tough time in the COVID times, right? She just was feeling kind of unmoored maybe, mm -hmm. of course, from not being in class and having her schedule different. And I was wondering like, what can I do to give her some foundation? What is it that's been taken away? You know, I can't change school. I can't change some things. And I realized something really small, Noah. So here's what I would always do on Sundays. I would always kind of make a, a menu for the week, right? Because our week was busy. We were at school. We were running around at activities. Well, all of a sudden when pandemic came, I stopped doing that. And so she didn't even know what was for dinner every night or if we were even going to have dinner, for gosh sakes. So I said, okay, how about I just make it a, a menu on our chalkboard, right? You wouldn't believe the difference that made for her. Mm -hmm. Just having that routine back in place gave her kind of um, an anchor. And so it really made me think that is also true in our teaching. See, our students right now are unmoored, right? They are, our classroom was the place we came together. And in that classroom, we were writers, readers, scientists, mathematicians, scholars, but we're not there all the way in the same way. So what could anchor us? And maybe it's routines. You know, if we always had a read aloud and we welcomed students with a read aloud, well, we can still do that. 
Yeah. Or if we always had writing time together and we shared a little bit, well, why can't we still do that? Or if we always shared a poem, we can still do that. And those routines became so important. And that's what anchors students and our classroom decisions. So this year, I think what we want to explore is how teachers are making decisions for their classroom around beliefs, around routines, and maybe some other things across the year, right? Yeah, and a lot of teachers are feeling like that three stooge effect where they all try to go through the door at once and nobody gets through. <laughs> right. But this time, instead of it all being the same kind of thing, which is three stooges, we have problems. We have tech issues. We have this new way of learning. And we also have like a million ideas that people are putting out there that also feels overwhelming, whereas normally a million ideas would feel exciting. I think that the core beliefs and the routines it's something you always talk about when we introduce a new piece of technology in the classroom, Beth. You, you oftentimes give the advice, do something that's silly, because if they have to do some learning along with learning the tech, it's hard to learn those two things at once. But if we can make that tech a routine, or if we can make the way we start class a routine, the new pandemic style of teaching and learning doesn't have to be learned anymore. We can just focus on the actual things that we want to teach once we have those routines, which are probably based on those core beliefs, right? Right. I mean, I think that's one of the important things, right? Like this whole effect of being overwhelmed and all of these things coming at us as teachers is that we might forget that actually like we're, we might be new teachers in some ways, but we're not exactly new teachers. We have beliefs and we know a lot of things and we have routines that have worked for us. And the routines didn't work just because we were in a classroom. The routines worked because they were smart and there was pedagogy behind them and we, there were, was actually core beliefs behind them. So we can, we can use those beliefs and practices that we have learned across our, our um, experiences as students and teachers and rely on them. And today's interview is actually going to center around a teacher who builds her work around core beliefs and around routines, so it couldn't be more perfect. Could you tell us a little bit about Lauren Olson, the person we're talking to today? I am so excited for you to meet Lauren Olson here. She is an incredible teacher, one of those teachers that does amazing things every day, and I'm not sure you know it until you stop and talk to her and then you're just blown away. So her MAT research was really stood out to me because of the way that she set up routines in her classroom and those routines were really allowing her core beliefs to take hold for her students and for herself. And by setting up this routine, she was able to grow readers and writers because the core beliefs and routines matched. And so I am so impressed by the work that she did in her classroom in her MAT research, setting up these routines, and then of course the way she's thinking about them now. So I'm, I am so excited for you to meet Lauren Olson and also she runs our OWP Instagram account. So she is also incredible at creating really great writing prompts for students and teachers to inspire the writer within. Just another one of her routines and core beliefs. And that is at OWPMU, and I will link that in the bio to this episode. So we interviewed Lauren last winter, before, but right before we could release it, 
that big old pandemic broke out. Have you heard of it? It's a thing. Anyway, recently we went back and listened to her interview and we realized that so much of her decision-making process, her core beliefs, her routines, and her approach fit this moment so perfectly. So we went back and emailed her and asked her how she's continuing this work that we discussed, discussed months ago in this new pandemic teaching situation. We'll cut into this interview throughout to share how she's adapting her work this school year. So with no further ado, here's our interview with Lauren Olson. All right, so I am joined by Lauren Olson, who teaches at Anderson High School. Lauren, how are you doing this morning? Doing very well. Fantastic. Excited to be talking. <laughs> yeah, it's great to be listening. Um, so I wanted to start um, by just thinking through your thought process on what it goes, what goes into planning, what goes into uh, making decisions in your classroom, because we're gonna. Beth has told me that you are a very curious teacher researcher and mm -hmm. there are lots of other teachers out there who are in the same boat and I just yeah. want to know what what goes into your thought process let's start with with planning what goes into your thought process when you're planning uh, lessons or a unit with with students sure so um, this is the fifth year in a row I've taught all ninth grade all day um, and over the past five years I've had a combination of pre-AP to CP to general and, and had all three some years. So um, one of the things I like to start with with that ninth grade age group is we have 45 to 50 minute bells a day. And I really try to chunk my day into like, or my class periods into like three 15 minute sessions of something. So often that's a mini lesson, but over the years I've just noticed that sometimes um, I lose attention and focus of students if we try to do something for 45 minutes straight. So that <laughs> small chunking into just three small parts has, has been really helpful um, with my ninth graders, no matter what um, what ninth grade level I'm, I'm teaching that day. Um, and then in terms of, you know, trying new things and my thought process, I do a lot of reflecting and, and think about what works, but also, you know, what's sticky or what could be better. Um, and I would say, you know, trying new things is definitely worth the risk. And I was really nervous to do that in my first couple of years of teaching. Mm -hmm. But as I started to chunk things into those three 15-minute activities, lessons, um, whatever that might be, um, I realized that it felt a lot less risky and scary um, if I just tried something for 10 or 15 minutes one day to see if it worked. Uh, it didn't have to be a full unit. It didn't even have to be a full class period. Um, but that felt really low stakes and, and not as scary. So I did, it didn't feel as daunting to try new things in little pieces. Um, and then I just realized if I wanted to come back to something new or I was excited about it or the kids were, you know, that was a good sign that that was something we could return to. Um, so that's really helped me. Um, not only in terms of keeping the kids engaged and focused in class, uh, even at the high school level, but just to have opportunity to try new things when they're small. And I just think that makes them much more, much more approachable uh, and low risk. That's so brilliant because, I mean, isn't that the big fear when you're trying something new? Like, I'm going to have to live with the results of this if it goes, if it goes south. Mm -hmm. It's so much e It must be so much easier to live with results if they're only going to last a few minutes. 
Or if you need to cancel right. the lesson, you're only canceling 15 minutes of your class. Right, right. And so even if it's just something I'm trying for one day, uh, it might continue and it might not, but it's definitely allowed for me to make more risks. And I've, you know, I think I've also learned in some of that risk taking, they haven't all been successes, but a good portion of them have been. And so I think it also be you become more encouraged to try new things with those success stories, but you have to start somewhere. So I've also become more willing to try new things as I've seen success happen in risk-taking. And again, that's just come from 10 or 15-minute things I've tried at the beginning of a class or at the end of a class. Um, but yeah, I think just starting small is really important. Yeah, and you're reminding me of uh, a Ken Anderson quote. I wish I could remember the quote. I'm going to have to paraphrase. It's something like, <laughs> Uh, you can never achieve something original or great if you're afraid to fail. And I mm -hmm. feel like the way you divide up these chunks, obviously it's you're doing it because it's going to be good for students. It's going to be make it easier to attend, breaks up the mm -hmm. day. But mm -hmm. also it makes it, it softens that floor for failure, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Oh, totally. And I think that's part of the um flexibility I've had to gain through doing this is like I don't always have a full month or a full unit plan because I want to see how something goes and kind of move forward from there um I would say the most important thing in terms of like beliefs that underpin when I'm trying something um is not just those those baby steps but getting feedback from the kids um I've really leaned on that a lot and it might just be an exit slip it might be a google form um but I have them write me a reflection every week. It might be about something we're doing in class. It might be some, about something we've read. But every once in a while, if I've tried something new, it'll be about that. Did it work? Did it not? What do you wish would have been different? Um, and I, for, for my first three years of teaching, I really underestimated how insightful kids are. Mm -hmm. If they're excited about something, they'll tell you. Okay. Um, their feedback is just incredible and really insightful. And I mean, the majority of them, not just a handful. So... I've also really learned to rely on listening to their voices and giving them some voice in the classroom um, because when they feel like they have that, they're going to give you some honesty, but they also get excited about changes you're making or things you're trying. Yeah. They let you know what works that way. And I think that's just like, I was just reading one of those uh, visible learning books from John Hattie and his people. Mm -hmm. And he talks about how when people think about feedback, the thing they're not thinking about is getting feedback from the students, not just giving feedback to the students. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, I, and I'm imagining that they let you know what works, but I bet, like, it's a, I think it's a myth that students will let you know when something's not working. Only some students do that, right? Mm -hmm. Have you gotten any insight? Like, what kinds of insight do you get in both directions from students? Yeah, I mean... There have been times when a kid's suggested something and I've said, oh, that makes a lot of sense. You know, first of all, they're creative thinkers and they've thought about ways we could expand or change things. Um, sometimes it's also just encouraging to hear if a majority of them felt like they grew or participated in something or wanted to come back to it. That mm -hmm. I know I'll get the, the buy-in, the excitement, the um, desire to participate from them. So it's encouraging, and I also just like, you know, often getting feedback that I say, oh, that would have worked too, or oh, maybe I'll try that tomorrow. Um, I think they enjoy not only having a voice in the classroom, but feeling like their opinions could sway or change or impact what we do the next week or the next unit. So um, it's a really nice way for me to, 
to hear every student's voice too. You always have the kids that are very willing, like you kind of mentioned, to share their feedback either way and those that sit there quietly and smile. So I think that's the other thing I like about those weekly reflections um, is that I hear from everybody. Lauren, you're doing so much important work in so many ways, and I'm having to take down notes to put pins and things I want to come back to. Um, So I want to circle back to the way you chunk lessons in just a minute. But Uh I just want to say, like, it's so smart the way you're getting feedback from students. And I know that if I were a teacher, I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of a teacher who who won't do this or who doesn't do this. And it's usually because of fear, right? We're afraid our students won't do it well. We're afraid our students will tell us how badly we're doing. And then it's going to be hard to carry on with that practice. What would you say to a teacher who's afraid to get feedback in this way? Um, You know, I would just say, and I would say I was probably a little nervous to do it the first time, but after giving it one try, I was super encouraged. So I guess just the same as, as what I was encouraging teachers to do earlier um once you try something and and realize that it'll work maybe in just a little piece you'll be you'll be more encouraged to get to get their feedback i think i started by just getting like one or two lines of feedback on a note card and that's expanded to these weekly reflections that they submit to me Mm -hmm. um so i think just that idea of starting small but being willing to try um and sometimes i it's really open-ended what did you think of this how did this go what could have changed um, sometimes I'm really specific in the type of feedback I ask for. So that's the other nice thing, mm-hmm. uh, especially if someone's concerned about criticism or, you know, you could say, which of these two lessons, activities, whatever, what did you like better? So you, you can get some, some opinions on what they liked best or what worked best for them. Uh, early on, if you're, you know, afraid of critique and criticism from the kids, just start that way and they'll still feel like they have a voice in the classroom. Um, I think I also, the weekly reflections as I've expanded them to kind of like a one pager that they Mm -hmm. submit, I also just really like that, um, I, I know that it's their voice, it's something they're writing because, you know, obviously in high school we run into copying and plagiarism and they can't plagiarize these reflections that they're writing about my class. Um, and I know right away if it was someone else's. So I guess the last thing I really enjoy about them is I know it's their writing. I know it's them sitting down and, and writing a page um, just about every week about about what's going on in the classroom. And so that's really refreshing, too. You really can't – there aren't really any shortcuts <laughs> with this type of writing either. Yeah. I mean, that's this right now you're illustrating one of the great things about the Ohio Writing Project. Mm-hmm. Um, you have just given us two or three things that we can use on Monday in our classrooms. Um, mm-hmm. with those weekly reflections, how do you, how, what's the prompt? Is it just, what did you learn this week or how are you, how do you, how do you phrase that? Um, it changes weekly. Like I said, sometimes like if we just finished reading a novel, it might be about the novel. So it's just anything that has to do with my class. Um, they usually have one just about every week, maybe every other week if we're in the, in the midst of a novel or something busy, but it could be anything from, did this activity work? What would you have changed to? How did the theme of such and such, um, how did we see that in our reading this week? So, I mean, they're pretty open-ended. 
Um, it could really be about anything. I like to mix things up. I feel like it would get a little bit old if mm-hmm. it was the same prompt every week. Mm-hmm. So if I try something new, then that week I'll probably ask about it. Um, if we're in the middle of a novel, I might just ask something about the novel. Um, but yeah, so, you know, some of that, um, some of those ideas behind, behind the importance of reflection I definitely got from OWP, but I realized instead of, you know, the reflection just being, um, me, the kids can write reflections too, and it's been a really, really nice insight into what's going on in every brain in my classroom, mm-hmm. not just a handful. In addition to that insight, I imagine, like, with the metacognitive work that a student would have to do to do one of these reflections, mm-hmm. I imagine it's making the information stickier in their minds. I imagine a lot mm-hmm. more is staying with them since they're having to come back to it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. That's fantastic. So, Let's go back. Can we circle back to the way you chunk up your classroom? Sure. So how do you, is there a certain way that you do divide your chunks? Is there like, I do this kind of thing first chunk, this kind of thing second, or is it more free form? It's pretty free form. And often it depends on, um, you know, if we're like in a writing cycle or writing unit, or maybe if we're um, in the middle of reading an anchor text. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, if we were reading, the Odyssey we read first quarter, that first 15 minutes might be, we write in their writer's journals every week um, in CPO, usually one piece. Um, so it might be a question about um, loyalty. I know we did. So the kids will write, we'll have a discussion, there's 15 minutes, then maybe we'll read the Odyssey for 15 minutes, read one of the books of the Odyssey, and then maybe the last 15 minutes we'll have a discussion. Um, or actually just this past Friday, we were right at the end of our um, Romeo and Juliet essay. So the first 15 minutes of class, I did a mini lesson. Um, the middle chunk of class, they did some writing. The final chunk of class, they got up with a small group I assigned and peer edited. So, you know, it's not rocket science. And sometimes it's not, you know, having to plan three different activities. But it's just giving the kid the chance to get up and move and kind of shift gears. Um, I've noticed the attention and focus has really gone up um, instead of years past where I might have said, okay, we're going to try to read The Odyssey for 50 minutes straight today. Um, mm-hmm. I was just losing them. And they're the mm-hmm. hard texts. Our anchor texts are hard texts. So to get them to really focus in for 15 minutes, it's great. Um, and I'd rather slow things down there and, and kind of weave other, other things in before and after. So that's definitely been a shift in my teaching. Um, but I've had a lot of success with it. And, and the planning is, is pretty easy. You're just kind of layering some things that you might have done on, on separate days, one day at a time. So first we wanted to hear from Lauren about how she's adapting her structure to her current situation. So when I emailed her to give us some updates, I asked, how are you using this chunking approach in your current in-person masked teaching situation with also some students maybe joining in virtually? And here's what she said. In regard to chunking up my class period in 10 to 15 minute activities, which would be three a day, uh, this continues to ring true now. In my school, we are back in person five days a week, but have two to four virtual students per class period. In the first week, I've made a few of those mini lessons into screencastify videos for one of my three pieces of class period. For example, I linked a six minute video of direct instruction to my Schoology page. 
The screencast included audio over the slides that I typically use to teach the lesson in person. That way, students who are absent or virtual can watch from home. Students who forgot some of the information or want to revisit the material can play the video again. And instructional videos will stay linked on my course page all year. Around Thanksgiving, for example, students write a gratitude letter to someone. And if they forget how to set up a letter, they can rewatch my letter writing format screencast on Schoology. Beth, what do you think about that? All right, so this is, I think, what we were talking about at the beginning of this podcast is what the beauty of like a routine is and is that it can keep you grounded and for your students, right? And what I'm thinking about what Lauren's doing here, this idea of continuing chunking. It was a routine for her students before that helped manage the class and students were able to learn alongside. And now it just is, it can still happen. And I think it's beautiful, right? And maybe even better for remote times, right? Yeah. I mean, this idea of like our students, if they're independent and working alone, you can't work in front of your computer for seven hours a day. Having things in chunks that are manageable, this is so smart. Yeah. And, you know, we were we've always been trying new things, but maybe this year more than ever, teachers will be trying new things. And one of the things I mentioned in our, in w when we were talking to each other is if something goes wrong and you're teaching one lesson for 45 minutes or 60 minutes, you have to suffer for 45 to 60 minutes. <laughs> right. However, if you have a tech issue or something weird goes wrong in this situation, you lose 10 or 15 minutes, move on to the next chunk. <laughs> So it's a great safety net in a way too. Yeah, and I love this idea of chunking too that Lauren's talking about in that they work into each other, right? That the reading and writing in these chunks then, students digest them, think about them, and then have a little bit of time, and then they move into another one, but they build on top of and between each other. So I, I think it's really beautiful. Agreed. So in this next part of our conversation, I guess this next chunk, if you will, we're gonna talk about how Lauren gets feedback from and encourages interaction between her students. And then after this chunk, Beth and I will uh, follow up with Lauren about how that's working in her current teaching situation. So let's go back to the interview. Once a year, one of these things will pop up in one of my social media or news feeds uh -huh. about I tried sitting in my being in my students' shoes for a week, and here's what happened. And uh -huh. in every one of these articles, they just talk about how much students have to sit and how lethargic uh -huh. you start to feel partway through the day. And this is students' reality every day. And I know I don't know about you, but I know I've forgotten what that is like. Uh -huh. So I think it's so responsive that you are embedding like movement or embedding shifts and changes it must keep things so fresh for your students mm -hmm. well it's it's funny actually it was in my first year of teaching that when um i got assessed by my my principal in a different district that was one of the places that i was knocked down a category with like the getting kids up and moving and I was like well, how do you do that in English you know this isn't science this isn't gym um, but even just the transition from activities or now get up and work with this group or turn around and work with the person behind you even just like a little bit of that movement has really helped some of some of them especially at this age 
Yeah. Do you ever have to, do you ever, are you flexible with your chunks? Do you ever have to have like a sustained period where students are doing one thing for a longer period of time or is it always chunks? Um, I mean, I would say rarely, but on occasion, um, like for example, um, in prep for the air test, I do like three or four timed writings with them that are Mm -hmm. 45 minutes. Um, unfortunately that's a reality the kids face not only on you know state standardized tests but some of the act sat type of type of situation so i don't want them to feel unprepared um when they get to a situation like that so yes there are days where we're doing something and working on kind of sustaining focus um on something for that whole class period i think that there's um that that will benefit them later too um but i would say that that's abnormal on occasion there are days when an activity or or something like that will take the full period mm-hmm. um unfortunately for the air test for example that's what they have to do they have one sitting uh to write that essay and so i, I need them to be able to be prepared for that too but i would definitely say that's not the normal day in my classroom mm-hmm. i imagine that when a student does have to do something for a long period of time they don't have like the begrudging i'm sick of this i wonder i was just curious does it feel novel when they just they just do it without any griping or I can edit this out if it's a bad answer. <laughs> are, you, are you talking about when they well, are? All right. So here's what I mean. Like <laughs> I don't do, I don't have students sit down and write for 45 minutes straight uh, either usually. Uh-huh. But uh-huh. in the times when I do want to see what, if students can do it or see what it looks uh-huh. like when students do that work, uh-huh. they usually just sit down and do it. And it does because they're not. It's not something worth like all oh, this again. It's almost yeah. like it's something new. No, I know what you're. Okay, now I know what you're saying. Well, yeah, and I, I, I feel like because those days are different, it feels a little bit new, but it also feels like important. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, oh, this, exactly. this must be important. We're using the whole class period to do this. Yeah. Um, and so I would not want to do that to kids on a regular basis. Like I sure. said, especially just with. You know, ninth grade, they're adjusting to to high school from from the middle school. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I would say they they still definitely prefer the chunking over a big long yeah. period of one thing. But because it's not the norm, it it tends to feel more important. Yeah, and um, I was, and that's exactly why I was asking. I was kind of trying mm-hmm. to lead lead you. It was a leading question because I think <laughs> the teacher who would be afraid. A, a teacher who would be afraid of chunking that be might be one thing that they're afraid of since that's something that teachers are always afraid of right right yeah yep so let's i think we can dive deeper into chunking just a little bit because i feel like this might connect to what beth told me you did your master's research and uh mm-hmm. listeners if you are not associated or affiliated with the ohio writing project the ohio writing project through miami university offers a master's of arts in teaching um, and it's basically action research. And Lauren, you did your action research on uh, using, I believe, did I, do I have this right? You used these small chunks for independent reading? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Can you tell us about that? Sure. Um, I could talk about that for a long time. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> last year when thinking about my master's uh, research, putting it together in the fall, I was actually um, – I had plans to do something else, but this idea of independent reading was one that I had struggled with for a really long time. And in fact, um, even as an English department at my school, we talked about 
how do you assess independent reading? How do you make sure the kids are doing it? How do you, it, how does it look in the classroom? Do you do a cheesy project at the end? What if half the kids don't read anyway? I mean, it was just, and I think it's not uh, just my department, but a lot of English teachers have that question. Yeah. And also, how do you hold kids accountable? So I scrapped my first plan for research about midway through and, and switched to wanting to give something a try, um, kind of similar to what um, Penny Kittle talks about in, in Book Love. They kind of mentioned some ideas surrounding this in 180 Days, which she wrote with Kelly Gallagher. Um, I was one of the things kind of like I described earlier that I'd wanted to try but was kind of afraid to. And so the research was a great way for me to have to try it. Um, mm -hmm. But again, I was kind of um, rooted in this idea of trying something small um, but daily. And so with my honors class, I gave them the first um, small chunk of class every day, um, six or seven, sometimes eight minutes, um, to independ independently read a novel. Um, and unlike any other independent reading I'd assigned, um, I kind of scrapped all of the old rules. Um, they could read a book that they'd read before. They didn't have to follow a Lexile requirement. They didn't have to turn in a project at the end of the quarter. Um, all the things I'd done before to hold kids accountable, um, I scrapped. And then they also didn't have to finish a book. So um, if you're halfway through a book that you're not enjoying, so we'll put it down, find one you like. Um, and so my hope was to teach them what real world reading is like. Because when we get to the world, um, we don't finish books that we don't like. We don't care the Lexile level of a book that we pick up. We have favorite books we read repeatedly. Um, and so I wanted to, to see how that went. So the first four days of the week, um, I gave them that time. And then on Fridays, um, I shuffled them each Friday. They had a small group of three or four, and they had to discuss the books that they were reading. Um, and originally, I had done this because I wanted them to get interested in, in the next book to pick up. Um, but I also realized um, that kids, and not just kids, my adults too, don't really know how to talk about literature. Mm. The kids are programmed to be handed a worksheet and answer the questions or have a slide of discussion questions, but on their own, they don't really know how to talk about books. And so um, that was what we did because it was a semester of research for the first six weeks. Um, and then the you know, this was something that Kittle and Gallagher have talked about before, that, that reading, daily reading time. Um, but then the second six weeks, I shifted my focus to actually giving them six or seven minutes of independent writing time. So mm -hmm. same thing when the bell rang, instead of having their book out, they had to have their writer's journal out. Um, they couldn't do it digitally. It had to be in front of them. I'd give a quick prompt, and then they'd have six or seven minutes to write. Um, and then same thing on Fridays. They would share with a small group. Um, I kept small groups the same, um, just like we did in the four week with OWP, because groups, right? I realized in um, my experience and what we talked about in the four week, you kind of gain some comfortability with opening up and sharing with people mm -hmm. um, as you continue to meet with them. So we did that for the next set of six weeks. And then the final set of six weeks of the quarter, I gave them the choice. They had to do one or the other. They could do one the whole time. They could go every other day. Um, but that was kind of their time. And so that was kind of the setup um, of my research. Wow. Um, so when you, you talked about in reading, when they were almost mm -hmm. doing like book talks in real time mm -hmm. with, their, with their peer groups, 
Did you have to teach into that talk or did they naturally develop it? Um, a little bit of both. It was interesting just because, you know, I scrambled them each Friday in that. Um, I called it a, the reading cycle. Mm-hmm. I scrambled the groups because I didn't want them to be hearing about the same two or three other books for like a month. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted them to try to hear about all the books that were being read in the classroom. Um, but of course then, you know, you you could really get a mix of uh, personalities and willingness to share. So one week, you know, I'd have a group that would just, non-stop talk about books the whole six minutes and be great and then i'd get a group of three or four really quiet introverted students who would sit there and stare um yeah and so that was what was kind of interesting you know if i had kind of with writing i picked the groups really specifically to know that that conversation would carry throughout but with reading i i couldn't if i was mixing them so i bought um table topics um if you haven't heard of those they're like card decks Mm -hmm. and um they just have questions i've seen them out like at restaurants before um but they have they have all these different like themed decks and it's just a question per card that's it they have a book club version and so the book club table topics cards ask like over 100 different questions that can be answered about any book um and so it would be like you know what would you do if you were the main character or is the first sentence and the last sentence are they related to each other or just a huge fan of questions so if I noticed like a, a lull in conversation I would just walk past the group I'd put two of the cards out on their desk and I'd walk away um, I wanted them to carry the conversation and not me mm-hmm. but that was just kind of like a nice stepping stone for kids that ran out of things to say so then they'd talk about those two questions for some groups, they'd get quiet again if they were a really quiet group, and I'd flip two more on their desk and i walk away. So the conversation did carry, but some of them just had never been given that much independence in talking about novels for six whole minutes. Yeah. Um, so that was a really good resource for me to just have right there in hand to keep conversation going. love this approach to figuring out what works and what to change in our practice. So next, when we followed up with Lauren via email, we asked her, how do you approach feedback from and interaction between kids in your current in-person setup? It's quite the question, she said, because there were just a few days back at the time of me asking. She says a lot of trial and error. At my school, we are completely in person five days a week, and I think one of my biggest takeaways over my teaching career is to never hesitate to to request good, honest feedback from the kids. They are way more insightful than we get credit for. I'm trying to go more paperless this year, which is not my style at all. In these first few weeks, I'm taking advantage of Google Forms for feedback. If you set Google Form as a quiz, she says, It builds in opportunities for you to give direct feedback and reply to a kid within the form, which I think is brilliant. She's also using Pear Deck for feedback during instruction and shared Google Slides, shared Google Docs, and Jamboard to get kids digitally collaborating and giving feedback to one another. What do you think about that, Beth? So can I just read back one of her sentences or something that she said? I think one of my biggest takeaways over my teaching career is to never hesitate to request good, honest feedback from the kids. What? Right? (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you'd asked me what my biggest takeaway was. I'm not sure I would have said something so smart. This is so right every day, always, any year, but especially this year. There's nobody else who's done this before. I mean, you've told me this before, right? Like we should be sitting in this moment that we are all learning together. Nobody has done this pandemic remote teaching at the start of a year before. But the, the people who do, who are experiencing the learning are our students. They're the ones, they're the experts here. And we should always be requesting good, honest feedback. They probably know what's working for them as a learner, what a teacher is doing in one classroom that maybe we don't even know. They're the ones who can tell us. They are a wealth of information. They always have been. And, and they are even more now. Absolutely. Like John Hattie talks about how we, we make the mistake thinking that us giving them feedback is the most effective form of feedback or the only effective form of feedback. But really, one of the most effective forms of feedback is the feedback they give to us on how effective our teaching is. And that can happen in a lot of ways. And Lauren outlines several of them here. I just want to think about the kids that you're that she's teaching virtually and the kids that lots of other teachers are teaching virtually. That's the hard thing about teaching virtually is you don't get any feedback. You don't get the body language feedback. You can't see if a kid is sleeping. You can't see if a kid's spacing out. Getting feedback from students is as important as ever, maybe more so. So in this next section, Lauren talks about how her work with students had a positive effect on their mental well-being. So when we come back after she talks about uh, mental health in this section, we'll find out from Lauren about how she's updating that thinking. All right, so let's get back to the interview. So I know from doing the MAT work myself not too not so uh-huh. long ago that the the question is always framed in like uh, what happens when. So uh-huh. I imagine a lot happens. So I would like to break it down if you're okay with that. What happened sure. to the community sense of community in your classroom? Oh, it was it was incredible, and I think that was part of actually my title was something about engaging readers and writers through choice being in community. Um, that was why I added, you know, the Friday piece um, to both to both cycles. I called them a reading cycle and a writing cycle um, because the kids often had a lot to say. Um, you know, in terms of reading, it was really it was because I piloted it in my honors class. They were excited to share about their books and hear about other books. Um, with writing, some of them weren't as thrilled at first to share their writing, but mm-hmm. that increased comfortability, especially in being able to open up and maybe share some pieces that are a little more personal. Um, and then I really enjoyed the mixing of the groups because I had a lot of kids that were like any class that come in as friends and sit by each other and talk to each other, but it was really nice for them to engage with everybody in the room throughout both of those cycles. Mm-hmm. So um, it was great. I mean, that class uh, became really close just because they had opportunity to interact um, in a low stakes way and over something that in that group was definitely a shared interest um, reading and writing. I imagine it affected their willingness to 
try the try new learning along with you in some really positive way. I just you know when a class has like a really tight knit feeling, uh-huh. I imagine it impacted the learning in a, in some really positive ways too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was great, and it was interesting. Um, part of the reason earlier I was talking about how insightful kids are mm-hmm. uh, is the feedback they gave me, you know, regularly. Um, but after this research was just so incredibly insightful. I mean, they said things that I didn't even predict to mm-hmm. hear or to the outcomes. Um, you know, one of the things a few students shared about the writing cycle um, was that that you know they all grew up reading, but they never very few grew up like writing regularly and so for some of them um that was a little bit of a challenge at first i think they Mm -hmm. they grew from that challenge but you know many of us are read or were read to growing up each day each night um but writing's a little bit a little bit different um so some did find it a little bit more challenging um a few kids also said which was interesting to me um that part of the reason writing was challenging was because or more challenging you know, they said with reading, you just open the book and the words are there and it's easy to follow along. <laughs> writing, you're having to come up with original ideas every day. Um, and so they said that pushed them, but that was that was kind of a challenge too. They were having to put the words on the page. So mm-hmm. those were some really interesting insights. I think um, the most, not only the most powerful insight I got from them, but also the most, you know, surprising was um, one of the outcomes. I mean, my... My big hope, um, and the majority of them said this at the end, was just that they would read more and write more um, outside of school, make it more of a routine. For example, when they're reading, they had to have a book with them every day. So many of them said, I'd go home if I was in a really good part, I'd read. Or if I was in science, I had a book with me, and I was if I was done with my work, I'd read. So the vast majority of them said they were reading and writing more. Um, but what was interesting, and one of the reflections, which I talked about earlier, Um, when I asked about some of, and I asked it really open-ended. I didn't want to lead them to say that, though Mm -hmm. most did. Um, Over half of the kids, without me mentioning this at all, um, during that semester, um, mentioned the positive, like, mental health effects of having six or seven minutes to read each day. I mean, they said it just really, they said, sometimes I'm so stressed. It was just an opportunity to go to another place for a few minutes. Some said that's what I look forward to most of my day now, just like six or seven minutes of quiet and peace. And, um, you know, it was just, even in the writing, some said it was really nice sometimes to just get something off their chest and and write it out about something that happened that day. So what was really cool was to see that that was a reason some kids were now looking forward to my class. And it was because they said it, it was, there were positive effects in that realm of mental health, which I had not even mentioned or really considered yeah. when I was setting this up as my research. So back to the fact that I said kids are super insightful. I mean, I walked away even happier with my research than I thought I'd be because kids are feeling calmed down and relaxed and, and relieving their stress before class got started. And that wasn't even something I'd considered. Yeah. Um, so kids are insightful and they, they bring new things to light that we don't even know are happening. Um, but that can be super encouraging too. It reminds me of, like I come, from, I'm a sixth grade teacher, but I come from like the elementary world, I guess, the elementary side of sixth grade teaching, and mm-hmm. um, we, a lot of us, do a work called responsive classroom, and one of the things mm-hmm. that's embedded into responsive classroom work, in addition to like morning meetings, um, and other hippie kinds of things, would be the <laughs> concept of quiet time, 
mm-hmm. where it's where you come into the classroom and you just have a few minutes of quietness, whether you're reading, writing, um, drawing. Like they have lots of, you know, it scales up or scales down depending on what kind of grade you're in. And mm-hmm. they talk about how it's just when you're talking or listening, it, it's exhausting. So I imagine mm-hmm. also, in addition to like helping students be in a nicer frame of mind, I bet it also makes them more able to attend to what happens next. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I actually, last year when I did this for the semester, um, I let them put in their headphones and listen to music, but actually this semester I switched to just saying, just have a six minutes a piece. Like, yeah. <laughs> some of them are so, want their headphones in all the time. And, you know, and, but in the high school, you don't get a couple minutes of just peace and quiet mm-hmm. ever. Um, and so that's been interesting, too, as I've continued the research um, this year um, and, and opened it up in my CP classes as well. Um, a good handful of the kids in their reflective writing this year at the CP level have, have talked about how it's kind of a good, like, little bit of recharge before they have to focus again. They've said it kind of calms down my brain or gets me ready for class or gives me a little brain break. So that was really interesting, too. Um, mm-hmm. I think I've, it's changed so much about how I view independent reading because I used to have a day or two in the quarter where I'd be like, all right, this is, you get an independent reading day. But the same thing with the chunking, after about 15 minutes, I'd lost about half of them. <laughs> um, yeah. And so this little piece, just six minutes a day, for some of them it's just a couple pages, um, is a really good way to get them focused and reading daily. Um and with six minutes a day, I mean, it adds to a half hour a week. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that was my biggest scare was losing 30 minutes of instructional time. Mm-hmm. But it's actually saved me time. Um, sometimes I'll read alongside of them. That was what Kittle was big on. But often I can use that six minutes to catch a kid up who's been absent for three days. I can set up the activity we're doing in that class. I can pass back papers and check in with a kid about their drafts. I mean all those things that I was trying to do as I was teaching and slowing me down, like I'm ready to go uh, six minutes at a class, even just taking attendance and, and getting kids in who are tardy from their last class. I mean, it's been, it's actually saved time. And I think that was a huge shock for me. Um, instead of giving up time, I'm actually saving it. <laughs> I'm really digging those lately. Um, anything with, that's in colored ink just seems to make grading more fun. I'm not sure why, but bright colors. Anything to make grading more fun is something <laughs> that I can get behind. Lauren, you're, you're doing some amazing work and I just want to thank you so much for sharing, sharing a chunk of your time. If listeners yeah. want to connect with you or follow you on Twitter, it's at yeah. miss Olson 11. If you are driving while listening to this podcast, do not, bother i will paste this into our episode's description thank you so much lauren thank you it was awesome so mental health is maybe more important than ever and that's something we keep saying a lot right now blank is maybe more important than ever but i definitely think that mental health is super key because we're also stressed and overwhelmed right now. So next, we asked her, you talked about how in your OWP research, kids showed positive mental health effects after having some quiet time to read or write. Is this something that you're still thinking about? What else are you considering with respect to chunking, a chunking approach this year? 
And here's her reply, absolutely. This was so foundational in my research two years ago. And in my classroom last school year, we are kicking off quarter one with six minutes of silent reading to begin all of my classes. And she teaches at least two different kinds of classes at the high school where she teaches. The kids were given this first week to locate a book they're interested in reading, having been wanting to read, or an old book that they want to return to. And this year, I'm asking that it must be a hard copy of the novel. No Kindles, iPads, PDFs, etc. I want to get kids a break from the screens each day to begin class, as they are on the computer in so many of their classes this fall. Writing will be routine in my chunking this year as well. And we will be doing a majority of writing in class in notebooks only. Again, this will be a break from the screens and an opportunity for kids to try new things, collaborate, and share their work in low stakes ways. How do you feel about that, Beth? So I think this is super interesting and I wanna actually focus on what she, how she ends, that idea of low stakes way, because I wonder what we'll find out about digital teaching and writing and reading in terms of how they feel to students. Because there is something a little bit low stakes about picking up a pencil and writing for six minutes in your notebook that feels different than composing online or publishing on Flipgrid to Google Classroom. And I wonder how, how that's going to turn out for students, right? This idea of low stakes. Or maybe there is something low stakes about picking up a paperback book that feels different than logging on to a virtual book and making it through so many virtual pages. I mean, I don't know. I think the other thing that's interesting about this is how we might be changing our definition of multimodal where in the past multimodal meant trying something like Flipgrid or making a, a comic or trying a different kind of mode. And now we're actually going back to paper and pencil as multimodal. They're always on the computer. Let's go back to some pencils, right? Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Paper, pencil, hard copy of books is the new ed tech. Yeah, exactly. You're right. Trying to incorporate they... into your day. <laughs> right. That's, that's right. a good way of thinking. I was, I'm, I'm glad you said that because when I first uh, read this response, I thought it was really controversial. It, I can yeah. imagine a lot of teachers being like, yeah, right on. We need to get these kids off their screens. I've seen kids, they're so tired at the end of their day after having looked at screens nonstop. But then I also imagine some teachers who are saying like, what about kids with fine motor skill issues who need to type or need to use? And the thing that I know about Lauren is that she gets feedback from her students and she is responsive. So what I think is cool is what she's going to do might work and she's going to get the feedback from her students that shows that it works and she can share that out with everybody so that we can ride on her brilliant coattails. But if something doesn't work or if there's an issue, she's going to get that feedback and adjust to that as well. Yeah, no, I thought that was um, really brilliant too, knowing this. So because students are already on devices, she's going to be asking them questions after writing in notebooks and reading books and saying then, so which way is right for you, right? Instead of us making all the decisions after um, for them, they'll be able to try this out 
And then they'll be able to say, which way should I go? Do I want a digital notebook? Do I want a paper notebook? Because it's the routine she's going to get back to. And right now this is the beginning and she knows mental health wise, there really is something about settling down and being quiet with the book or the notebook. And she's just setting up a routine. So I agree. I saw that. I saw that and wondered. And I also adore the idea that it's really grounded in these core beliefs of feedback and these core beliefs of students reading and writing on a consistent basis. And then that routine of the practice of the time that she gives all the time. Not to mention the core belief that she cares about her students' well-being. Like this isn't a teacher trying to be old school and making kids write in cursive with only their right hand. <laughs> right. This is a teacher who's responding to how tired their eyes are going to be. It's not sustainable, right? Exactly. And find this out. Right. And to say that my daughter left the house today with a backpack full of notebooks and folders because for every class, she wanted to make sure she had one, even though she was only going to school face to face one day a week. Everything else was online. That is the daughter of an Ohio Writing Project co-director. Right. <laughs> you must be so proud. So as we bring this interview to a close, I just want to remind everybody that this season, we're not going to be trying to throw out a million strategies your way. We're going to focus on decisions that teachers make. And those decisions most often turn out well if we're rooting them in core beliefs and if we're creating routines that anchor our teaching and anchor our students, making them feel more secure in the school day. Happy teaching, everyone. Good luck.